Welcome back to Dads on the Air, coming to you around Australia on the Community Radio Network. In this program, we bring you informing and entertaining conversations with a wide range of interesting people on topics of fatherhood, family and parenting, men's and boys' issues, and more. Hi, I'm Bill Cable, and our guest today is Jeff Apter. Jeff is the author of a new book called Malcolm Young, The Man Who Made ACDC, and is the author of more than 20 music biographies. His subjects include the BGs, the Finn Brothers, and previously Angus Young of ACDC. That band ACDC must be a special interest for Jeff because uh, he's also ghostwritten a book on Mark Evans, who played bass with ACDC at one stage. Um, His new book is described as a must-read for ACDC fans and anyone who loves rock music. Jeff, welcome to Dads on the Air. Hi, thanks for having me. So, uh, Jeff, some people who know the band might be surprised to hear you describe Malcolm as the man who made ACDC. Mm. There were others who perhaps had a higher profile, but uh, you've chosen Malcolm as the man who made it. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, for even the outside observer, they would see Angus Young as the face. I, I think I once described him as uh, the face, the sound, and the pimply backside of ACDC. <laughs> and, uh, and that is very true. When you go and see them perform, he's the man that commandeers the stage. But Malcolm, until his untimely death of of three years ago, um, was really the guy who was calling the shots both creatively. When you hear an ACDC song and you hear those big riffs, those big guitar riffs, that's all Malcolm. You know, he formed the the spine of these songs, if you like. But he was also the guy making key decisions offstage, the hirings, the firings, the direction they should head, their goals and ambition. I mean, the best way to sum up Malcolm's ambition if you like is I spoke as you mentioned in your intro I ghost wrote a book with the original bassist Mark Evans and when Mark joined the band in early 1975 Malcolm said to him just so you know in a year's time we're going to be in England we're going to have a record deal and we're going to be taken on the world and at this point the band was still third on the bill on a Tuesday night to no one at a local Mm -hmm. pub and Mark kind of laughed it off and said, yeah, sure. And Mark wrote in his book and he said, I was absolutely right. It was a year and a week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Malcolm was very driven, very ambitious, um, and he had no plan B. He had no mm. option but to pursue a life in music because he didn't have any other thing to fall back on. And mm. um, I think that's one of the big things that drove him for, for so many years. It, uh, he came from a big family, didn't he? There were, there were eight of them and a very very musical family to start with. That's they? right, yeah. I mean, um, his big brother George, of course, was the the rhythm guitarist, interestingly enough, in the Easy Beats and really the main creative force of that band along with Harry Vander. He had other brothers back in Scotland where he came from, brother Alex. In fact, he was the only young that didn't come out to Australia. They came out as 10-pound poms. Uh, Alex stayed because he was playing in a number of bands that actually shared bills with the Beatles in Hamburg in the early 60s. So he had quite a, a musical, um, was quite a credible musician himself. But at home, mm. there'd be a, always be a piano. There'd always be songs being played. Malcolm's big sister, Margaret, she was a little bit older and she was a big influence. She'd go to Glasgow markets and pick up the newest records from Little Richard. Buddy Holly, you know, Chuck Berry, all these greats, and bring them home and expose Malcolm, who was quite young at that point, to this music that really stayed with him for the rest of his life. But, yeah, mm-hmm. very musical family. And, and 
Yes, you just mentioned uh, they were very a very Scottish family, weren't they? they were, that they that were. young. Yeah, they didn't wear kilts, but yeah. um, they they loved soccer, um, and that was something that that lived with Malcolm for the rest of his life, and George as well. Yeah, I think they had this interesting situation where they came to Australia in 1963. You know, Malcolm was um, he would have been uh, 10, I think, at the time, so he was still a kid. But hung on to that Scottish brogue, you know, throughout his life. That accent never went away. Um, and also something about they were brought up in a housing estate in Cranhill in Glasgow. It was pretty tough. You know, Dad was in and out of work. Um, there really wasn't a lot of money. You know, a lot of people sharing this one small place. And the thing I find interesting, one of the many things I find interesting, is their first port of call in Australia was the Villawood Migrant Hostel. I mean, it wasn't a step up from Cranhill mm-hmm. at all. It was pretty similar. It just warmer. That was the only difference. So he did it pretty tough, and I think that served him well, actually, in life, because mm. he was always unpretentious. He was always very – if you can call a man who was worth a couple of hundred million dollars working class, Malcolm was still very working class right to the end. So, yeah, he mm. certainly never shook off those roots that he had in Glasgow and also mm. out at Villawood, even though they mm. stayed home for a short time. I think it left a deep impression on him. Well, yes, they they certainly worked extraordinarily hard when you think they're out on the road for about 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, you know, he said, this is a job. And that's a vastly different attitude to you hear most rock and rollers who tend to think that they're going to save the world or change mm. the world. Malcolm always said, it's a job of work. It's just it's not nine to five. And I have to treat it that way. You know, and I think there was a quote from his brother Angus. He said, if we didn't in the early days, if we didn't play, we didn't eat. You know, so it wasn't about being a superstar. It was about survival. And I think that really, even as I say, when they became this, not just a band, but a brand, you know, mm-hmm. ACDC, they still took that attitude, I think, to things. They really, I think Malcolm might have hung on to the first dollar he ever made. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they were, and I think it really served them well because mm-hmm. they didn't disappear into pretension creatively. They didn't become larger than life characters like, say, an Ozzy Osbourne or someone like that. And they didn't follow, unfortunately, Bon Scott did, their singer, but not, there wasn't, it wasn't like they were destined for, a, you know, a tragic demise or anything like that that you'd see mm. with a lot of rockers where you just go, I know something, like Elvis Presley, for instance. Mm. You knew something bad was going to happen eventually, yeah. So, yeah, they were very grounded. And even their name came from fairly, uh, what, ordinary sort of background, you know, when yeah. they... Yeah, yeah, unpretentious, totally unpretentious. ACDC had just, well, the band had just formed, which was Malcolm Angus and anybody else they could rope in at the time. And they were struggling. They were going to call themselves, you know, the Younger Brothers or something Mm. like that. And um, Margaret saw that ACDC warning sign on the side of a sewing machine while she was sewing one of Angus's school uniforms, Mm -hmm. you know. And she said, what about that? And, of course, Malcolm and Angus went, that'll do. sounds great. And, of course, they didn't realise, this is 1973, 74, um, the certain uh, implications in the term ACDC until someone highlighted it to them, which came as a bit of a shock. There's a wonderful story that they, um, on the name alone, they were hired to play a series of shows with um, Carlotta in this far-flung West Australian nightclub, and they drove all the way across the Nullarbor because it was going to be two weeks' worth of work. And let's just say the owner of the venue was expecting some sequins and some boas, and instead he got five scruffy blokes in jeans and T-shirts. The engagement didn't last its distance. So, yeah, it did lead to some confusing and, and uh, complicating complicated times. Yeah. And I, I, I think this strong family link in all this, I mean, we haven't mentioned yet, but big brother George, you know, was yeah. a founder of the, the Easy Beat. So. Australian music uh, royalty. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and 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 then you know when the ACDC got into hard times 
in the sense that uh, they're, they're, they finally found the right singer. Bon Scott was going to, uh, you know, got them in the right direction. Mm. Everything's going well. And then he died. Yeah, but yeah. that wasn't the end of the band, was no, it? No, and it's such a rare occurrence in rock and roll, as we've seen more close to home with In Excess, mm. or more recently with In Excess. Sometimes you just can't replace that front person. And I say this with all respect to, all due respect to musicians, but you can replace a drummer, you can replace a bass player, and sometimes you can even replace a lead guitarist. But a front person, it's such a key part, visually, vocally, creatively, in so many ways of a band, that people tend to identify with that singer. And I think a lot of people, a lot of ACDC fans still identify with Bon Scott as the lead singer because he was, firstly, so good. He had such charisma and presence. He was a terrific lyricist. And I think a genuinely funny likable kind of larrikin that yeah that that caused a lot of problems for them when, when bond died so you know he was um yeah larger than life i think is the best way to describe mm. it yeah, yeah and i mean it was i think lucky on both sides when they got the new singer brian johnson but brian knew where he stood he he was not well, no, no malcolm told him where to stand <laughs> <laughs> this is this is, goes back to what you're saying about malcolm you know what i said about malcolm doing the hiring and firing, he was also the guy, quite literally would say, your spot is there in the micro, near the microphone, you stand there, I stand here, and just get out of Angus's way. You know, he was really very, he could be quite abrupt, you know, but all for the good of the band. And speaking of that band, I mean, did we really need another rock and roll band at the time, do you think? I think so, hmm. yeah. And Malcolm often was quoted as saying the early 70s were the time, and it was. It was the sensitive singer-songwriter. It was James Taylor. It was you know, Elton John in his early days. It was um, bands like Bread and so on. The Eagles even were coming through. And they were all, this came after this wonderful period of mid-60s music with The Who and The Stones and The Yardbirds and The Beatles, you know, these fantastic rock and roll bands. And suddenly everything was about getting in touch with your emotions and your feelings to the sound of acoustic guitars. And Malcolm did have a thing for that kind of music. He, he didn't admit it openly, but he loved Mrs. Robinson by uh, Simon and Garfunkel. He loved My Sweet Lord. He loved early Elton John records, which took a bit of extract, a bit of digging for me to find that mm -hmm. out. Um, but at the same time, he didn't want to play that. You know, he loved the sound that George had with the easy beats on his rhythm guitar. He loved those chunky chords. He loved the... And, there's even a theory, the one job that Malcolm did hold down outside of ACDC was working in the Burley Bra Factory. And some have said that, that industri those industrial sounds actually made its way into his playing, which I think is pretty interesting mm -hmm. because there's a lot of power in his playing. And who knows, who knows, that might have seeped into his you know, muscle memory or his subconscious. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, he was never going to do anything else. ACDC was always going to be his life. And uh, just the way he presented himself was who he really was. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I think he was complimented as having the best right hand in the business. <laughs> well, you know when Keith Richards praises you, you're doing okay, because yeah, many yeah. people say that Keith Richards had the best right hand in the, the mm. world of rock and roll. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, he. Um, it, that's another interesting thing about ACDC and Malcolm. When Malcolm died in 2017, it was... Obviously, there were many tributes, many accolades, but it had been only in the last 10 years or so that a lot of people started to take ACDC quite seriously. They were really seen mm. up until maybe the turn of the century as, as kind of, I won't say cartoonish, but Angus, you know, that almost comical character on stage. He was such a focal point with the devil's horns and, the, you know, people would be bringing their kids dressed as Angus to the shows. Mm. And it, it was it was like theatre. It took a while before... and. This was led by people like Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters and Closer to Home, The Living End and bands like that, who all started to say, you know, ACDC are an incredible band musically. 
And I think a lot of people started to review the way they saw the band. And so much of that was about Malcolm's playing, you know, mm. that muscular, quite, um, I wouldn't say sophisticated, but he had, his brother George once said to him, it's the stop that rocks. And what he meant, it was the space between the notes. Mm. And if you listen to Malcolm's playing sometimes, or these signature ACDC riffs, there's little pauses. You know, it's not just thrashing away on the guitar. It's actually quite structured and purposeful. And that's really interesting. And I think a lot of musicians recognize that. Once they got beyond the sort of cartoonish aspects of, AC, of you know, Angus in particular, they started to realize, man, these songs are good. These guys can really, really play. That sounds like a good introduction. Uh, Jeff, we always uh, ask our guests if they'd like to pick a song uh, for the program. Sure. And I think you've picked one. Would you tell us which one it is and yeah, why? Yeah, it's a, a 1978 song. So it's just before they really exploded internationally. It's called Rock and Roll Damnation. Although I started calling it Dalmation a few times. Recently. <laughs> I don't know. The interesting backstory. So they've been working with um, George Young. Uh, Malcolm and Angus's brother and Harry Vander, they were their producers for the first five or six records. They'd signed the international record deal that Malcolm always said that they wouldn't, and they'd relocated to the UK as Malcolm had insisted they would. But their records weren't selling internationally. They were becoming quite a big live attraction, playing all the big festivals and concerts and getting a lot of interest and a lot of work, but not selling records. And a lot of it was their American record company saying, it doesn't sound right for American radio. They made this record called Power Age and they thought they'd finished it. And in classic record company parlance, the guy said, I don't hear a single. And they were very angry about this. And they went back to the studio and almost threw this song onto tape, Rock and, Rock and Roll Damnation. It's quite, it's a little bit different for us. There's no big guitar solo, for instance. However, it became their first big hit in the UK. It went top 20 and it really saved their career. And I sometimes think without the success of this song, we've never heard Highway to Hell or Back in Black, which, you know, became... Monster Records for ACDC.
And that was Rock and Roll Damnation. Uh, so you could listen to all we've been talking about, uh, Malcolm Young. And we're speaking today with Jeff Apter, who is the author of a new book called Malcolm Young, The Man Who Made ACDC. So, Jeff, um, you mentioned the ACDC formed in about 1973, I think. Late 73, that's right. Did Malcolm, I mean, they seem to have signature guitars for those of us who are guitar freaks. I mean, Malcolm always had that big Gresh was about as big as he was. That's right, a hand-me-down from Harry Vander, from the Easy Beats days. That guitar had a lot of history, yeah. yeah. And there's stories about people being drawn to playing uh, in the band because of Malcolm's guitar. You know, we want to be with the guy who's got Harry Vander's <laughs> guitar. You know, so that guitar itself had some great history. Yeah. And yes, you're right, it dwarfed Malcolm. Yeah, <laughs> so really did. I didn't realise the history, but maybe that explains it because uh, the other, his brothers, I mean, George had a very small guitar, I think, and mm. and um, even Angus, he uh, he's got that Gibson SG, which is a fairly it's light. small, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, you know, Angus often said, it's lighter, it's easier for me to play, and particularly given how physical he was on stage, mm. a big heavy, a big heavy body, wide body guitar would have been a nightmare for both him and for the roadies, you know, to mm. lug around, and it suited uh, Angus. But of course, Malcolm stood stock still on stage. Malcolm wasn't going anywhere on stage. He had his little piece of turf to the right of the drum riser, and that's where he stood. If he had to go and sing some backing vocals, he'd march to the microphone, do what he had to do, and then march straight back to his spot. And I always liked that because it was such a contrast to what Angus was doing. He had a signature, Angus had a signature move they called the dying bug, where he'd lie on his back and spin around in his own sweat. (laughs) Sounds pretty gruesome, but it's actually quite, if you could imagine him playing in some sweaty suburban club in Sydney or Melbourne or wherever in 1975, it was quite a shock, you know, when he walked down into the middle of the crowd and starts spinning around on his back. Yeah. Fortunately, he had the light guitar. <laughs> well, yes, and you mentioned some of these uh, sweaty shops where they were where they were playing, and uh, there was, there's always a sort of a little bit of a hint of violence oh, uh, yeah. with ACDC, and yet, you know, the boys were, Angus and, and Malcolm were oh, probably only about... Five foot what, nothing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it was that time, that... I guess it was the development of that whole kind of pub rock circuit. And as a as a kid growing up in Western Sydney myself in the in the early mid seventies, I knew all these venues. You know, there was a place in Blacktown called the the Coman Cutter, but we used to call it the Curb and Gutter. You know, because mm. that's where a lot of people would end up at the end of the night. You know, and it, it was almost like every suburb had one of these big beer barns, be it in Sydney, be it in Melbourne, Adelaide, wherever. You know, they were sprung up everywhere because. You could shoehorn a thousand people into these places. The bar stayed open till late, um, and they needed bands that could play loud and hard. And um, you know, the book I worked on with Mark Evans, it's called Dirty Deeds, and he really vividly describes some of the um, adventures that the band had in these places. And quite often, it was a life or death situation. Mm-hmm. It was madness. It really was very, very. I think Mark used the word tropical. Things could get a bit tropical, he told me, and that meant basically, and there were many shows where the band had to retreat. There'd be stage invasions, there'd be huge fights. There was one uh, show I wrote about where Angus went into the crowd to do his dying bug routine and someone thought it'd be good fun to start laying into him with their feet, you know, booting him. And, of course, there were a couple of pugilists in the band. The drummer Phil Rudd was known to, um, you know, didn't mind getting into a bit of a fracas every now and mm-hmm. again. Unfortunately, he jumped in and broke his thumb on the first head that he hit. You know, just just mayhem, just chaos. And it was mm-hmm. quite commonplace at ACDC shows. I think quite often, you know, the stage would be wrecked and the floor, floor would be covered in glass and sometimes blood. You know, it was mm-hmm. a pretty... They could be very dicey 
You know, there would often be police have been called in to, you know, escort a big crowd of way. Or, um, you know, there's a wonderful story about them playing, and this is a totally different environment, being invited to play a week of sh- lunchtime shows at the Miss Melbourne shop at Myers in Melbourne. Uh, this being a, a, a girls wear, essentially, shop. This was just after they'd um, got a lot of exposure on Countdown. And that crowd was just as nutty as they were at any of the yeah. suburban <laughs> venues. The band, you know, they said, we didn't even get time to start. And because they were actually set up on the store and they just invaded the stage. Not only did their female fans invade the stage, they looted the store as well. <laughs> so, yeah, it was crazy. It was, mm. I'd like to say madcap, but it was actually, there was a hint of danger, you know, in these early days of ACDC. I think it'd be a great movie. It'd be like the equivalent of the Beatles' Hard Day's Night, but, you know, with added fight scenes <laughs> and mayhem extra mayhem and lots of beer well, well perhaps like the the beatles they they always went over well with their fans i think but not necessarily with the with the rock critics that's right that's right particularly yeah. when they went to the uk when they relocated in 76 it was the summer of punk rock it was the sex pistols and the stranglers and uh, the damned and the clash and all these great bands but acdc didn't fit in they were a band that liked to play bluesy rock and roll uh as influenced by you know their key Influences would be Chuck Berry and the Rolling Stones. They were the people they really... And the old bluesmen. They really admired them. They didn't want anything to do with pierced lips or bobby mm. pins or bondage trousers. It just meant nothing to them. And it took a long time for them, to, like I said earlier, to get real recognition. Uh, the music press took a long time while they would give them coverage. It, particularly in the UK, it was, it was kind of condescending. You know, mm. they'd get headlines like timey wallaby down sport and you know chunder mm-hmm. down under and things mm-hmm. like that which is just i mean every aussie gets it and it's a part of that whole colonial thing and i'm sure people such as you know barry humphreys and all these great jermaine greer and all these amazing australians who went and lived and worked in the uk they all got a hint of that as well mm-hmm. you know you bloody aussies but i think they outgrew that eventually and, and i think just through sheer determination and musical skill eventually won over the music press as well as audiences. Well, they waited for the world to come around to them, I suppose, because I it, they, yeah. they never changed their style really at all, did and they? And that was Brother George. You know, the Easy Beats, the Easy Beats is a fascinating history because they did, they changed their sound. They tried psychedelic sounds. They tried mm. big ballads. If you listen to the Easy Beats catalogue, what they did over a period of four years was almost as eclectic and as broad as the Beatles, but just without the same level of success. And that was a big bugbear for George. He knew that in order to be commercially successful, quite often you had to find your sound and stick with it. And he told Angus and Malcolm very early on, even their first recordings, he said, you've got a sound already. Hang on to that because that's what you're really good at. And, you know, essentially they went and made the same record for the next 40 years. (laughs) But their musicianship got better. Their songwriting got better. The production got better. But it was a very fundamental rock sound that they played and they stuck to it. And... Now people regard that their sound as the signature sound for rock and roll of the last 30 years. Just moving ahead now, the uh, they were still playing away, playing these massive tours. In fact, the last tour that Malcolm did was probably one of the biggest they ever did. Mm. But uh, it was around about that time that, um, I think, was it Angus that noticed the first changes in Malcolm? That's right, yeah. Um, for the first time, given this is, what, 2008, thereabouts, so Malcolm's been playing some of these songs for 30-odd years and just before they go on, sh- to, on stage, Malcolm would suddenly be rehearsing these songs that he knew inside out, that he played thousands of times, that he could play in his sleep. And he probably did play in his <laughs> sleep. And Angus thinking, you know, he said, this is, this is just unlike Malcolm. 
he's starting to lose a bit of control because he was always very much in control of the situation on stage and off. And it was very clear that something was going on. And uh, that ultimately led to, you know, a diagnosis of, I think it was shrinkage of the brain. And then he got ill. You know, he had lung cancer. He had heart problems, which ultimately resulted in a dementia diagnosis. It was a gradual thing over the course of a few years, but it really needed someone as close to Malcolm as Angus to really see it, because I think Malcolm was a pretty proud guy. I think he would have done everything that he possibly could to mm. not make it known that he was struggling. Uh, but as soon as they saw him rehearsing songs that, like I say, he knew inside out, it seemed that something just wasn't quite right. And, you know, Angus had conversations with him. Are you OK? Can you keep going? He said, absolutely. I'm going to keep doing this until I can't. And that was really a sign of the guy. You know, he was not, if he committed to a 200-date tour that was going to take 18 months, he was going to damn well finish it, you know, mm. no matter how he was feeling or the problems that he was having. And and he did that, you know, a real testimony to the man. Yeah, it's just a tragedy. He died really so young. I think he was about 64 when he when he died. And, and just didn't get a chance to really savour. And I think yeah. about this a lot. People say, oh, 64, you know, that's okay. But it's not because he kept working up mm. until the last few years of his life and mm. working hard. He never really got a chance. And this is a guy who at the end of his life was worth probably $150, $200 million. He'd never had to work again. But he, you know, he lived the life. He enjoyed that life, that making records, touring, then disappearing for. That was his world. And I think, I don't think he really got a lot of time to to really just stop Mm. and reflect and savor the success and everything that he'd achieved. I think he'd reached, probably reached that point in his life and then unfortunately died. Yeah, he, he wasn't one for the rock and roll lifestyle, was he? I mean, he had that place in Balmain and he was, I think, in his private life with his family, he was the same as he was on stage. He was Absolutely. the man in the background. Yeah, staying grounded, being real, you know, not being pretentious. Okay, it just remains for me now to give a special thank you to Jeff. Jeff, thank you very much for being on Dads on the Air. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from any of our listeners. You can go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, and send us an email and we'll be in touch. If you'd like to listen to this show again or any of our shows, go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, and you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And we'll be back next week with another show on Dads on the Air. Dads on the Air.